0: Who put Bella in the Witch Elm? Who put Bella in the Witch Elm? Or, who put Bella in the Witch Elm in Hagley Wood? are two of the graffiti that were dormed all over some towns in the Midlands back in the 1940s and the 50s after a woman's body was found wedged into the middle of a tree in Hackley Woods, a nice woodland that lies on the outskirts of England's second city, Birmingham. How did she get there? Did she simply hide and then get stuck? Was she killed? Was there a link to the Nazi party? Why was one of her hands missing? Was she involved in witchcraft? Just like the Isdal woman, why is this woman's identity still not known today? Let us delve into the mystery that surrounds the body in the tree and ask, who put Bella in the witch elm? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is good to be back. I would first of all, I'd like to apologise to every single one of you. The uh, show has obviously been delayed a couple of weeks and that is because on the day that I was meant to be getting this recording done, I came down with a very heavy cold and my voice didn't work, which is obviously not good if you are recording a podcast. I would like to thank all those people that sent messages of support. Obviously, when you're trying to get a podcast out, you you really want to get it out on the schedule. It's not nice to be delayed, and again, apologies for that. I do just want to get out a quick message that was sent to me by Danielle Sheehan. Uh, she's organising the Welsh UFO Conference in, it's actually in a lighthouse, a real-life lighthouse in Newport in the UK, and it's on the 10th of June 2023, and there's going to be quite a few speakers there, including Gary Jones, Paul Jamie MacDonald, Maria Wheatley, there's going to be lots of people to some question time. You can network with people. If you're interested in going, I think there still might be some tickets that are left available. Uh, go onto the Facebook page for UFOs and other paranormal stuff, and you will see a Welsh UFO there in, uh, well, big red writing. Click on the Eventbrite link, and you will be taken to the place where you can get the tickets. Good luck with that and I hope it is a really good event. Please do let me know how it goes. I really do want to go. I'm going to go next year. You can can mark me on that one. I'm going to go next year. Okay. Have a good one though. And like I said, it's in a lighthouse. I love lighthouses. They're strange but they're very, very interesting buildings, aren't they? Best place to have a, a UFO watch. Which is also going to be included in the event. So definitely do get back to me and let me know how it goes. A few months ago, I was planning my episodes for this podcast. I had just completed the episode "The Beast of Box Hill," uh, which seems like years ago now. And I was thinking, what we really need is a good mystery. We like nothing more than a real good mystery, don't we? A who done it, who could have done it, a what done it, you know, that kind of thing. And some of the biggest mysteries have been those of unidentified people. Of course, the big one was the Somerton Man. Uh, the man who was found dead on a beach in Australia back in the late 1940s and try as they might, the authorities could not identify the body. Then, of course, there is the case of the Isdal woman, a woman who was found dead in suspicious circumstances in the Ice Valley near Bergen in Norway and whose movements in the time leading up to her death seemed even more mysterious and maybe suspicious than her actual death. Both of these cases have been discussed in previous episodes on this podcast, uh, which you can find at www.ufosandops.com, along with all the other episodes. So whilst planning the Your Stories episode, which of course turned out to be a two-parter, and the Green Children of Woolpit episode, I looked into the cases of unidentified people from the UK. And that is where I found out about who put Bella in the Witch Elm case, which dated from the 1940s. And wow, what a case it is. And it all started back in 18th of April 1943. Four young boys, Thomas Willits, Robert Hart, Bob Farmer and Fred Payne, were doing some poaching in Hagley Wood, part of the Hagley estate that belonged to Lord Cobham. Whilst walking home, they came across a strange-looking tree, a witch elm tree. Now, when I first heard about the case, I thought of this tree being just like a normal tree. Big trunk, branches at the top and nice green leaves too. But the tree they found was weird looking. Which elm trees sometimes develop what would appear to be to you and me to be like two, three, maybe more trunks or large branches coming off the main trunk. Going by some pictures on Wikipedia of elm trees. But this one was very odd indeed. It looked like a clump surrounded by lots of branches in a formation that can only be described as like an exploded broom head. The newspapers at the time identified the tree as a witch elm tree, but to be honest, it was more likely a common hazel tree instead. If you have a look on the internet, yeah, you can see there's quite a bit of a difference. Bob Farmer wanted to have a look inside the tree to see if he could find some eggs to take home. This was wartime, of course, and rationing was in full force. If his findings were edible, then that was a bonus for him. He climbed up the tree knowing that many of this species have like a hole in the middle where birds can easily nest and he looked in to see what he could see. He didn't find any eggs. He found a skull. A human skull. He first thought, as many of us would in this situation, that it was an animal skull and so he took it out of the tree to take a closer look. He noticed some hair and teeth and the hair was attached to a patch of skin still attached to the skull. He realised to his horror that, yes, he had found a human skull. The skull was deep inside the tree. If someone else had put it there, they would have needed to have climbed up those nasty sharp branches and really gone to work on getting it into the location in which it was found. The boys were in fact trespassing, and so they decided to put the skull back, and tell no one about it. But their little secret did not last long when Thomas told his parents later that very same night. Thomas' parents told the police, who went out and searched the very next morning, with Thomas leading the way. After climbing up to see what they could see, the police decided to split the tree open. They had seen something else inside the tree that the boys hadn't. A complete human skeleton was wedged into the tree. The skeleton looked as if it was standing up because it was wedged so hard into the tree. It had virtually no skin left on it. This body had been forced into the hollow tree. As decay had set in, the corpse slid deeper into the hollow have a look at the picture of the tree that I have put up on the website and you will see just how difficult it must have been for the person to have either gotten themselves up into the tree and into the hollow simply because of those spiky branches, which would seem on view to make it impossible thing to do. Even more impossible for someone to have carried the body up there and then dumped it into the hollow of the tree. The hollow itself was so narrow that it would have taken a lot of effort to get the body into it. It makes me think that whoever did this must have had a very good reason to go to such lengths to hide the body in this way. Maybe more than one person could have been involved. There is a spooky and unpleasant feel to this. There is a sense of panic and a sign of silencing and constraining of women that enclosing her in a tree is just horrible but it adds to the fascination of the case. You see, for some, women were seen as more disposable than men, especially during wartime, sadly. Believe it or not, there were actually many poster campaigns doing the rounds at that time, warning people to be wary of loose women. Some people considered those women to have been free with their favours and therefore were spies for the enemy. Women were presented as an underlying threat thanks to these campaigns. Dear oh dear. James Webster, forensic scientist at the Birmingham University found that the body belonged to a five foot two inch tall brunette woman about 35 years old when she died. Due to the unique environment that the hollow of the tree had, it was impossible to work out when this woman had died. Decay and wildlife had proven to be a problematic factor in trying to find out the date of death. Police did, however, find remains of some clothing in the tree too. Severely decayed, there was just enough clothing for the scientists to get an idea of the woman's outfit. It was a cloth skirt, tatheta underskirt and wool cardigan. This was usually the style for summer dress for a lot of women in that area at the time. Using this, they managed to work out that the woman may have died in summer 1941. This, if correct, would have meant that she was in that tree for one and a half years. Also, to add to the mystery, the police compared the physical description of the woman with existing missing persons reports at the time. However, they were unable to find a match. The evidence gathered by Webster led the coroner to declare that the woman had been murdered by person or persons unknown. Unfortunately, the inquest records cannot be located. Eleven days after the discovery, Webster gave his expert opinion on the case, noting that part of the skirt had been found in the mouth. He couldn't tell if it had been put there before or after death, but did say that it was placed into the mouth in such a way that it would have caused asphyxia. He went on to say that there was, and I quote, no unequivocal proof in the skeleton as to the cause of death, but as I have indicated, the position of the mustard khaki coloured skirt forced into the mouth as I found it does not appear to me to be accidental, and could most certainly, if pushed into the mouth during life, have caused death from asphyxia. He went on to say that he concludes that this is much more likely to have been a murder than an accident or a suicide. He said that the entrance to the tree was extremely narrow and would have caused actual injury if even a small woman of this nature should have forced herself into the tree. There was a good amount of information at the scene, the body, the details of the clothes found out by the forensics, yet still no matches could be found with missing persons reports. Other forces around the UK were informed, local people spoken to, even dental records were searched, yet nothing came of it. No one gave any names and no identification could be found by use of medical dental records, searches and anything else, basically. Unlike the Somerton man case, the police this time could not put too much information in the newspapers, especially as this was wartime and printing such things could have had an adverse effect on morale. It is of course suspected by experts that someone did know the person who was found in the tree, and the murderer, but also posit the theory that because the murder may have taken place in the woods, that the meeting of the two or more people was in fact clandestine in nature. Hiding her in the tree was probably done to get her hidden and out of the way. Given everything that the police tried, nothing came to light, no name, no information at all. But there was one thing. A soldier had written to police in Hales-Owen the previous year, trying to get them to help him trace his girlfriend, Mary Lee. He thought that she was staying on a farm near to Hales-Owen and that she was part of a traveller family. Back to the case, and again, in the link to the Isdal woman and the Somerton man cases, it had been discovered that this woman's clothes had no labels, no identifying marks on them at all. Who cut them out? Why did they cut them out? This was something that a lot of people who worked in the clandestine industries, spies and things like that, did to help protect their privacy and stop anyone tracing their whereabouts after death or whatever. But also, this was a time of make-do-and-mend. Because it was World War II, clothes were not easy to come across during the war, and so if clothes were damaged or worn out, people would just either make do with them or try to mend them. Some people even shared their clothes with other people. Police did, however, have her blue crepe-soled shoes. They were found at the scene. They found out that 132 pairs of those shoes in that size had been made in Leicestershire during April to June 1940. If those shoes belonged to the dead woman, it proved that she could not have gotten into the tree before April 1940. This could prove to be a big help to the police, couldn't it? However, the woman was 5 foot 2, and the shoes found were size 5.5. Could she have stuffed the toe ends of the shoes that might have been given to her? Or were the shoes not hers at all? Could they have belonged to someone who put her into the tree? Could they have been a decoy? Sadly, this lead led nowhere. Make do and mend, as well as clothes sharing during the war, meant that this particular lead could not be effectively followed up. Then, something started to appear. On a wall in a street in Birmingham appeared some graffiti written in chalk. It read... Hagley Wood Bella Upper Dean Street, more graffiti appeared. Who put Bella down a witch elm in Hagley Wood? In Hales Owen, who put Lou Bella in the witch elm appeared on the side of a house. Was Bella the name of the dead woman? Another piece of graffiti left on a fence post seemed to give more information. It read, Address, I was opposite Crown, Hagley Wood lubella did this mean that the police finally had a lead did they have an identity the graffiti kept on appearing around the area was this real or was it a misdirection speculation was rife was she a refugee was she a spy was she connected to witchcraft and the questions kept on coming all of these months of inquiring into any information about the dead woman and they were no closer to finding who she was and why she had been murdered. Or were they? Remember Mary Lee? Mary Lee's boyfriend, Private Hayward, was the one that got in contact with the police to get them to help him find her. But the police received letters from another soldier too, Private Fletcher, who was also looking for her. And then another from Reverend A. Harper, an army chaplain. The chaplain stated that he was concerned for a soldier who he was working with as he was anxiously trying to find the whereabouts of a traveller woman called Mary Lee who worked on fruit and hop farms and who was last seen in Worcestershire. Worcestershire is a county in the Midlands not too far away from Hagley Wood. He described her as being in her twenties, five foot two, with black hair. Could Mary Lee have been the woman found in the tree? According to the records from the time, there was a sense that all groups were a threat, travellers included. There was a genuine anxiety when it came to travellers back then, as they were seen to be a group that were very much outside of the restrictions that people had to abide by during the war. They moved around from place to place, could not be called up to serve easily. They avoided rationing. This made people very anxious about travellers. There were some groups of society that chose to opt out of society and go and live in some obscure places for whatever reason. Public anxiety, affected by war, mental health issues, etc. Also, given that this was late 1940 and there was no social media in those days, obviously, as well as no DNA, no mobile phones. In fact, there wasn't even that many connected phones in those days. It would be easy for somebody to just disappear from society. The woman could have lived her entire adult life in any of the surrounding cities, towns or villages, yet no one would have known who she was, which could have been a reason why there were no reports of missing people. The police's thorough investigation led them to barracks to try to get more information and they found that Mary Lee also went by the name of Mary Wenman and the letter writer Bill Fletcher, a spurned lovelorn soldier, he had in fact... Been the person who had written all three letters that claimed to be from the chaplain and Private Haywood, too. He had led the police investigation into another dead end. The case became forgotten about as the Midlands became a target of the Luftwaffe bombing raids. That was until a police conference took place in Hagley Woods in 1949. They came across some information stating that a group of gypsies was seen standing near the tree in late 1930 or early 1940s. This was to become known as the Gypsy Wood Murder Conference. The mystery was, back in the papers, chins once again began to start wagging. However, the unsolved murder of Charles Walton had taken place in Warwickshire, also in the Midlands, and someone was giving her theories about that murder to the press. She also started to give theories of the Who Put Bella in the Witch Elm case to the press as well. That person was anthropologist and archaeologist Margaret Murray. Her theory? The Hand of Glory. Witchcraft. A nearby pub named The Gypsy's Tent had reported hauntings since the 1700s, and these reports spread to the woods. By the 1940s, rumours were abound that Hagley Woods was being used by witches to conduct their rituals and witchcraft. In 1945, 82-year-old Margaret Murray, also an Egyptologist, who was in fact the first woman to publicly unwrap a mummy, and a keen studier of witchcraft and the history of the occult in England. She believed that followers of a pagan religion, a coven of witches had survived through the witch hunts and trials to the modern era, and were secretly operating in England. She believed that these witches were conducting rituals that were intended to cause supernatural results, and that some of them might involve sacrificing young women and burying them inside trees. A popular belief from the medieval times said that burying a woman in a tree would trap her spirit in that tree. Murray also stated that the name Bella was short for Belladonna, a poisonous plant that is quite prevalent and significant in witchcraft. Belladonna was believed to possess potent magical qualities and was used by witches in potions, ointments and flying ointments. It was said to enhance psychic abilities, induce visions and aid in divination or astral projection. It is also thought to have been used by witches to induce hallucinatory experiences during rituals and ceremonies. A significant clue for Murray was that the skeleton's right hand, supposedly found near to the tree. Murray said that this was seen as evidence that the killer was trying to use witchcraft to make a magical object known as the Hand of Glory. Now, you might be thinking, why is witchcraft a thing in Britain at that time and why were people so eager to believe in it? That is because witch trials hadn't ended centuries ago. They were still happening, although to a much lesser extent than all those years ago. The trial in question at the time was the trial of Helen Duncan, the last person to be tried in England for witchcraft. She was tried under the Witchcraft Act of 1735 for conducting what the authorities said were fraudulent seances in which she claimed to communicate with the dead. In 1941, during World War II, Duncan was holding a séance for people who wanted to make contact with their dead relatives. She revealed information that a naval ship had been sunk before the news had been officially released. It was that which led to her arrest under the previously mentioned act. She was found guilty and sentenced to nine months in jail. This case was all over the newspapers and in everyone's mind at the time that Margaret Murray posed her theories in regards to the body in the tree in Hagley Woods. Murray had said that the Hand of Glory is a black magic torch that is made from a severed human hand. It gave out invisible light, invisible to anyone but the holder. Other people say that it could be used to unlock doors, as well as many other uses. Murray's explanation sparked a huge interest in the case once again. Who Put Bella in the Witch Elm graffiti was still popping up all over the area. They still are to this very day, and the most popular of which is on the base of an obelisk located on Witchbury Hill, just a short walk from Hagley Woods. Was this the work of a copycat, or was an entire coven of witches taunting the local community and the investigators? The witchcraft theories surrounding this case went nationwide and very well might have caused proper uproar if it wasn't for a huge event taking place that overshadowed this somewhat. That event was Germany surrendering, and World War II coming to an end, in Europe at least. Peace, relief, jubilation took over the country and finally British soldiers would be coming home. That included one by the name of Warwick plant. Warwick plant became interested in the case and the who put Bella in the witch elm graffiti daubed all over the place. His finding out about the case jogged a memory from before he went off to war. He said that whilst working at a pub some years before a short woman named Bella came in and asked him if she could play the piano for tips. His mother, one of the owners of the pub, agreed. His mum and Bella became friends. He remembers that his mother gave Bella a pair of blue crepe shoes. Sadly, Bella began to turn up, exhibiting bruises, and on one occasion she came in with a black eye. She said that her landlord had attacked her and beaten her. A few days later, she stopped showing up altogether. Warwick went to look for Bella in Stourbridge, but could not find her. His sister reported this to the police, who made a note, but seemed that they did nothing after. The plants were not interviewed. This was frustrating to the family, who just wanted to make sure that Bella was safe and, if not, to offer some refuge. But this is also frustrating for investigators of the case afterwards, as Bella's disappearance occurred at the same time that the forensic scientist Dr Webster's timeline suggested that the woman was placed into the tree. She had blue crepe-soled shoes, the same that was found near the body in the tree, and she went missing at the same time that the scientists say the body could have been killed. Why did the police not follow this lead up? The police thought that because the case had been in the press now for some time, that the family had made up the story for attention. They would know all the details about the case, the name Bella, the shoes, the skeleton. Maybe they could have attributed the story of the shoes and the name to another woman. Warwick's question still does not answer the biggest question in the case, that being why was she buried inside the tree? Say that the woman found in the tree was the woman that played the piano for tips in that pub that Warwick Plant worked in all those years back. That would mean that her name really was Bella. It would also mean that the person or persons who were leaving graffiti everywhere were not just doing it for amusement, but they knew her name. They knew about how she died maybe the person who left the messages everywhere was doing it for some sort of attention themselves maybe they were the killer and all the media frenzy was invigorating almost intoxicating to them and when all that dried up all of that stopped too at which point the killer would have known that they were indeed safe and they decided to have some fun in drumming up some intention in the case again by daubing graffiti around the environs of Birmingham. Could it have been someone else who in fact did know Bella, and wanted her killer to be found, but was scared of going directly to the police for fear of being implicated in the murder in some way, and used graffiti as a way of getting her name out, almost like the way that many people do now when someone is killed, A lot of people share pictures of the deceased on Facebook and Twitter and that, along with messages like, never forget, insert name, or who killed, insert name of the victim, or who put, insert name, in the witch elm. You know the sort of thing. Sadly, the graffiti did not lead to anything and again the case went cold. That is until 1953, when a new line of investigation started to come to light Wilfred Byford jones worked as a journalist at Wolverhampton Express and Star newspaper based in the West Midlands. He received a letter one day in 1953 and it read thus. Finish your articles on the Witch Elm crime by all means. They are interesting to your readers, but you will never solve the mystery. The one person who could give you the answer is now beyond the jurisdiction of earthly courts. The affair is closed and involves no witches, black magic, moonlight rites. Much as I hate to use a non-diplume, I think that you would appreciate it if you knew me. The only clues I can give you about the person responsible for the crime is that he died insane in 1942 and the victim was Dutch and arrived illegally in England in 1941. I have no wish to recall any more. Anna cleverly. That letter is real and is in the archives in Worcestershire. Who was Anna Claverley? Was it Anna of Claverley? Claverley is a town in Shropshire, close to Bridge North, which is less than 20 miles away from Hagley. Half the police, now finally, 10 years plus after those boys found the skull in the tree, found a link that might yield a name and the identity of the killer. The letter states that the victim was Dutch and arrived in England illegally during the war. Now, given the relative freedom of travel nowadays, people might find it hard to believe, but easy to understand that at a time of war, it was illegal for people to arrive in the UK from certain parts of Europe. Certain parts of Europe more than others, due to the country of origin being close to Nazi Germany, possibly full of spies, that would love to get into the UK. Now, of course... The country in question was the Netherlands, as the woman was Dutch, and the fact that it was invaded by the Nazis in 1940, anyone coming into England from there, would have been deemed illegal. Anna of Claverley wrote again to Byford-Jones and arranged to meet CID in a pub. The letter was hand-delivered to the newspaper offices. The pub is now called the Manor House of Whittington and is located in Kinver. 70 years ago, the woman met CID and identified herself as Una Hainsworth, a.k.a. Anna of Claverley. Una's official statement given to the police at Kenilworth explains that she was married to Jack Mossop and that they lived in Womborn. He was based in Southampton during training for the RAF. But it is possible that he did not get through the selection process, as in 1938 he was back in the Midlands working in aircraft factories in Coventry. She goes on to say that someone called Mr. Van Rout came to their house in 1940. According to her statement, she believes that this man was Dutch. He had no proper job, but she was suspicious that he could have been a spy as he had plenty of money and her husband Jack started getting plenty of money after meeting Van Rout. In the early hours one morning in 1941, she goes on to say her husband was white as a sheet. He asked her for a drink. He told Una that he'd been to a pub with Van Rout and the Dutch piece, I quote, and that she had become awkward. Jack drove Van Rout's car as the woman passed out. Van Rout gave mossop directions they ended up in a wood and stuffed the woman into a tree the dutchman told mossop that she would come to her senses the next morning una noticed how over the following months her husband became very nervous and started to drink a lot more than usual he also had lots of money despite hardly going to work any more Una had to leave her husband and go and live somewhere else in 1941. Una told the police that Jack had said to her one day when she was getting her furniture that he was losing his mind because he was seeing the woman in the tree all the time, leering at him, looking at him, wherever he was, whatever he was doing. He told her this either in late 1941 or early 1942 before the woman had been found in the tree, before any gossip and before any appeals by the authorities trying to find information about her. He seemed to know what had happened before the boys even went looking for those eggs in Hadley Woods. She claimed to know nothing about the case until reading it in the Express and Star ten years later. But that was later proved to be untrue. She knew about the case when everyone else did. She said in a statement that she came forward because she wanted to do the right thing and hoped that by doing so, information she gave would help police with the case. Una concluded that because Van Rout was a foreigner, he was a spy. A Nazi spy. She also thought that her husband was selling military secrets. The notion of Nazi spy theory may not be as far-fetched as it initially appears. After all, Birmingham was a centre of production, which is why it was bombed so heavily during the war. It was also Britain's second city, and was the city where, if London had been destroyed during the war, the government, the King, the BBC, the other major organisations would have moved to. Jack was working in factories which manufactured bits and pieces for the Air Force, It's very likely that German agents were sent to those factories to steal top-secret information, kind of like the Soviets did during the Manhattan Project a few years later. The thing is, though, is that it still does not explain the graffiti and the burial of the woman in the tree. How did the woman end up in the tree? That is where the already mentioned confession by Jack Mossop comes in. He continued that Van Vralt attacked the girl whom Mossop claims was the Dutchman's girlfriend, after a huge row between the two erupted after they left the pub the three were drinking in, and they left her in the tree as mentioned before. In 1942, after saying everything to Una, Jack Mossop moved into a mental hospital but sadly died a few months later. Police in 1953 were not sure about how much of Una's statement they could believe for the same reason as with the Plant family. So much time had passed and so much information had gotten out to the public that she could just be making it up to to get some attention. Also, if they were spies, Van Rout was probably not the man's real name. But they did find something. Another police report that, for some reason had not been picked up on. In the summer of 1941, the time around which Bella was most likely killed, a police patrol near Hagley Wood noticed a car pulled over to the road's side. The officer got closer to the car and noticed the man, the driver, wearing a Royal Air Force uniform, and a woman lying down in the back seat with the driver's coat covering her. The officer thought that he may have interrupted some romantic goings-on and thought nothing more of it. Years later, when the report was found, the officer was unavailable, so the police did nothing more. The police could have wrapped it all up then, but because the officer was unavailable at the time they wanted to talk to him, they did not bother to question him at a later date. That could have been Bella and Jack Mossop. Van Rout could very well have been scouting out the location to get rid of the body at the exact same time the officer was having a look inside the car. Given the timing, it is likely that it was Bella and that it was her who was making the screams that were reported later that night. It could also be that Jack Mossop was the murderer and that Van Rout was nowhere near. Maybe Jack and Bella were seeing each other behind Van Rout and Una's backs. Maybe Jack was using Bella as she was a bit too free with her favors, and when she wanted to get a bit more serious, he killed her. Maybe Van Rout was indeed the murderer and Jack Mossop just the tragic witness to that murder and maybe he was unable to say anything publicly or to the police as Van Rout would have murdered him. Looking at this case from 2023, it is hard to be able to work out exactly what happened, without any doubt. But it would be nice to put an end to this one and give Bella, if that is a real name, some peace. To let her rest in peace, you know what I mean. None of that explains the graffiti and the other messages seen around town, though. Jack Mossop had died by the time they started appearing and, according to his ex-wife Una, he was the only one who knew about the murder other than Van Rout. Could Van Rout have been the one to tease the public and the community by daubing the graffiti everywhere? Could Una herself be the one who needed to get the story out into the open and off her chest, but maybe felt unable to do so, as she was frightened that Van Rout and his cohort of spies could be watching her and ready to kill her if she went to the authorities? But nowhere in Una's statement does she indicate that she knew the victim's name as Bella. I have to say that it is sad to think of the way that women retreated back then. Killed if you did not do what the man wanted you to do, and then dumped in a tree like rubbish, thrown into a bin and forgotten about. And the way that the male-only police force back in those days decided to simply not follow up on leads that could have led to Bella being identified. There are theories that a Dutch woman was killed by a German spy ring consisting of a British officer, a Dutchman and a music hall artist for knowing too much. She was called Clarabella Dronkers. Now, I hear that the BBC are reinvestigating the case, but even they have run into issues. Some of the evidence has gone missing. Some of the files have been removed, the skeleton itself has gone missing, you know, the usual... That is the reason why no DNA evidence can be sought, like it has been in the case of the Somerton Man. The remains were in the care of Dr Webster in the University of Birmingham until he retired in 1955. They were passed on to his successor, Dr Griffith. It is possible that it was buried in a pauper's grave, an unmarked grave, and forgotten about. As mentioned, a lot of the evidence, police notes, crime scene photos, witness statements, etc. were held in the record store and they also went missing. Now, one of the workers there at that exact time was Estella Rimmington. Stella Rimmington, strangely enough, went on to become Director General of MI5. It is possible that if Bella was involved in this Nazi spy ring, as suggested, that the British government would want that kept secret. Mulder used to say the truth is out there, but in this case, could it be the fact that the truth is actually in there, and that somewhere in the basement of MI5 lies the identity of the woman found inside the witch elm tree in Hagley Wood 80 years ago? Whatever her real name... Clara Bella, Lou Bella, Bella, I think that we all need to keep on asking the question, who put her in the witch elm? And to keep asking that until her identity is found and she can rest easy. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all very much for joining me on this captivating journey into the mysterious case of who put Bella in the witch elm. We hope you enjoyed the episode, exploring the chilling details and theories surrounding this unsolved enigma. I would love to hear from you. Share your thoughts on this subject and send in your own paranormal stories too, or simply just get in touch with us. You can do that by visiting the website www.ufosandops.com and fill out the contact form. Your feedback and your stories are what make this podcast truly special. They're what makes it work. If you have enjoyed this episode and the UFOs and Other Paranormal Stuff podcast, please do think about making a small donation. Your donations will help me continue producing captivating episodes just like this one now and unravelling the mysteries that surround us. Please consider making the donation through the website. Every donation made, no matter the size, will make a significant difference and enable us to carry on with the podcast. Remember, the truth is out there and together we can uncover it. Thank you for listening and until next time, stay curious, open-minded and stay tuned for more UFOs and other paranormal stuff. Take care now, bye bye.